Today uh, is Vision Sunday, and I'm curious, uh, it's a real tough one. Is anyone familiar with what our vision is? Come on, just shout it out loud. If you look over one of my shoulders, you, you could get it. It's not Jesus, I'll just say that, okay? It's not the classic Sunday school answer. I mean, it is Jesus, but you know what I mean. It's not quite that in this case. That's our mission, yes. So that one's over here, right? Vision, yeah, yeah. To see our city renewed. We want to see our city renewed. Renewal is what happens when people recognize Jesus Christ and they begin following him. They live in his presence. And then they learn to live in reality of his reign and his kingdom here on earth. And I get that that's like really, um, kind of feels like maybe 10,000 feet up here, right? Vancouver has the fewest amount of Christians of any of the major Canadian cities. In fact, Vancouver is the most religiously unaffiliated city in North America. Nearly 50% of residents claim no religious belief. That's more than Portland, which leads the U.S. US at 42%. There's thousands of people in our city who have not encountered and experienced life in the kingdom of Jesus. They're not familiar with them. And so I get uh, that we have this big, hairy, audacious vision. And it's not something that we can accomplish on our own. It's not something that uh, we can even just do as a, a church on our own. It's something that we need God's direction, provision, and inspiration to do. And it's something that we'll actually have to do in partnership with other churches who have a similar heartbeat and vision for our city. And yet, still, even saying all of that, it still feels like really high up here. It doesn't feel like, okay, take me into the forest. I'm seeing above it. I get what our vision is then, but how, how, do, we, um, how do we directly contribute to this vision? How do we be part of what the Lord is doing here and wants to do in our city? This morning, what I want to do is try to walk through four things that we can do. And it might surprise you because they're not all that um, complicated. Yes, they can be challenging, um, but let's just walk through them. Number one, be fully devoted to Jesus Christ and his way. The way we experience renewal is by being a people who are fully devoted to Jesus and his way. In Matthew chapter 4... Verse 19, Jesus first calls Peter and Andrew, and this is what he says to them. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The NIV says, come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Here we see these three parts of Jesus' invitation and his vision. Come and keep company with me, and I will make you into something you are not. I will make you fishers of people. And the reason why the NIV puts it as fishers of people, it really just has to do with the word that is used there. And it's, it's, uh, it's just more accurate to capture it as people. It's not strictly men as in males. So it's fishers of people. And this was a common description in Jesus' day uh, for philosophers and teachers who captured people's minds through their teaching. And what Jesus was doing was really common in the first century amongst rabbis. Disciples of a rabbi would follow the rabbi and try to do everything that they did. Their aim was to become like the rabbi in the ways that they thought, the way that they interacted with people, 
It wasn't just their uh, intellectual knowledge, what the rabbi knew that they would want to take on. They were apprenticing to become like them. It was this embodied knowledge, this way of living and being. Rabbis and their students, uh, they, they would spend all of their time together eating, sleeping, serving, helping. Think of the everyday tasks that Jesus would have had to do, the everyday tasks you might have to do. And just imagine that you'd have this group of people following you. Now, those of you who are parents know that's what your kids do. You're like, I just need some space. Jesus did too. So he went alone to these places to pray many times. But what Jesus would do and what rabbis would do is that with their disciples, they would seek to form them, form them into the people uh, who, who looked like them. Now, in the case of Jesus, when he's calling his disciples, these, these guys, Peter and Andrew and others, you and I, what he was doing is inviting them into the everyday tasks of life and using all of those things to draw them closer to him to form them into the kinds of people he created them to be. And then he would equip them for the mission that he was going to give them. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson, when he talks about following Jesus, uh, paraphrases Jesus' invitation in another part of Matthew, in Matthew Matthew chapter 11. He he puts it like this in uh, the message. He says, Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Do you notice the emphasis here on keeping company with Jesus? Come to me. Get away with me. Walk with me. Work with me. Keep company with me. Learn from me. Be with me. There's this image of being with Jesus in all of life. And Jesus says that when that happens, you learn to live freely and lightly. And it's no wonder when we read the Gospels, Jesus' disciples come from a wide array of backgrounds. You've got fishermen, you've got tax collectors, political zealots, doubters, you have sex, former sex workers, demonically oppressed people, social outcasts, the poor, the wealthy, the irreligious, and the religious. These are the people who become the fishers of people. And that's our call too. Being disciples of Jesus is central to the renewal of all things. Renewed followers of Jesus share the life of God with others. Being disciples of Jesus is central to the renewal of all things. God spiritually renews individuals when they put their trust in his son, Jesus, and follow him. And the Bible says you're born again. This is a rebirth or a renewal. You're alive in a new way. Physically, you always were alive, but spiritually, you're made alive in Jesus. And what Matthew in his gospel does, it's just like discipleship manual which has been so helpful for us as we work through it. At the very end of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus fleshes out what it looks like to make disciples. When, he said, when Jesus says in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always 
to the very end of the age. This is the outflow of Jesus renewing you. This is the outflow of his renewing work in you. You share his life with others. You become disciples when you, become, when you begin to follow him. And you get baptized into his life, the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then you learn all that he teaches you. And you spend your life learning to obey and practice what he teaches. And it's because of this that as a church, there's certain ministries and things that we seek to do on a regular basis. Alpha is one of those. Alpha matters. It's why we're trying to run it at least once a year. The dream would be twice, if not three times. But right now, the goal is like, let's just get going once a year. Because Alpha offers an environment to explore questions of faith, of Jesus, of life and meaning. It offers a place where people can encounter Jesus in a non-threatening environment. It's also, though, why these courses that we've run matter. The Following Jesus Today course and the Way of Jesus course. Because they offer a place where we, we can be formed by Jesus through the Spirit as we learn about His way. As we learn to think about how our lives intersect with the values of our culture and how we can be formed not by the dominant way of thinking in our culture, but actually by Jesus. And often it feels like we're swimming upstream. So there's things we have to learn, and in some cases, things we have to unlearn. That's why these courses matter. And I don't know where you are this week, in your walk with Jesus, or this year, but this morning you're here. God wanted you here to speak to you. And the invitation is to devote yourself to Him and His way. And when you do, He promises you will learn to live freely and lightly. That's one way we take a step towards contributing towards the renewal of our city is actually being people who are fully devoted, not just as individuals, but as a community. And that's our second point. point. Follow Jesus with others. Not alone, but with others. There's no place in the Bible where you will find a solo kind of spirituality that gets endorsed, as if it's just you and Jesus. There's nowhere in that place. Despite the fact that throughout the Bible, you see pictures of God's people getting it wrong over and over and over again. There's lots of reasons why you might think you don't want to be in the company of others. Tyler Statton, he, he, he notes, look, the unintended consequence of being with Jesus is that he sticks you with others. Just how it works. He sticks you with others. We follow Jesus with others. And yet I realize that even within our church, probably half of us aren't part of a community group or a DNA group. And in some cases, it's not like we're against people, we're trying to avoid people. It's just, it could be a really hard stage of life. Friendships aren't as easy as they once were before they were really convenient. Now they're not, so now you don't see certain people anymore. Maybe it's that you're overcommitted to work, and I don't mean like, you know, it's the busy season of work. It's literally just you've been overcommitted to work for an ongoing, long-term period of time. That's a different thing. And because of that, you can't actually prioritize relationships and following Jesus as another. All of us need a small group of disciples to follow Jesus with. At Cascades, what we did was in the pandemic, we said, look, let's start off with DNA groups. Small groups, we could just meet um, you know, over Zoom. And then we started meeting in person. And some of these groups have actually grown. They're not like these small little groups of three or four people. They're like 10 people, eight people. 
And so they've become more like these community groups, places where others can come in. And when we do that, when we come and share life with one another, we are reminded that we aren't alone in our challenges and in our successes. That you actually have something to offer to other people. That you matter. That your presence is actually going to be more important and greater than the sympathy you express. And you get to show that in a community group. And yet it also gives us this form of accountability. And I don't just mean like uh, confessing sin. What I mean is you have a place where you can spur one another along. How many of you, if you had like a workout buddy, would work out regularly? Or maybe you just have like a walking partner. And because you have a walking partner, you actually walk. Then some of us are like, oh man, I want to start like working out all the time. But I just, I can't get into it. And yet when I used to have a workout buddy, I did it all the time. That's because you had this exterior, uh, you know, external kind of motivation and accountability from someone else who would just be like, hey, let's go. In my life, the peak moment where I was exercising and working out was when me and Kenny would go and work out after work all the time. Once we, we stopped working together, that like, we just went, why? Because I need that kind of external support and accountability where I might be tired and I'd be like, oh, I don't know if I really want to go and he's going to give me a hard time for it. On the flip side, when he wouldn't want to go, I would make him go. We need one another. That same dynamic is really important for the grand majority of us when it comes to following Jesus. We don't just do this on our own. We need someone else to help us, to encourage us, to spur us along. For the grand majority of us, our personal discipline or devotion is not enough. And we don't have to be ashamed of that. We have to be discouraged by that. We're wired to be in community, to need one another. Listen to what Paul writes in Galatians 6, verse 2. He says, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. There's something about sharing life with one another and our burdens with one another that brings Jesus great joy and honor. So why don't we? I want to suggest that outside of the things I've mentioned, one of the key reasons is because we've actually been disillusioned by community in the past. We're kind of jaded. I mean, Here's the trouble with holding that in over the long term, holding to that kind of jaded perspective. When you look at the Gospels, you'll see Jesus with his disciples and the disciples with one another, and they're not all the same. They aren't getting along. They're often arguing over who's greater, who's going to be number one and number two next to Jesus. They're getting upset because Jesus isn't telling the other one that they need to be helping them prep this meal and serve, and they're just sitting before Jesus. There's like these little like battles, internal conflict that's going on. They're not always getting along. They have conflict because they have different personalities, different views, different, sometimes different values. Sometimes they just make mistakes. But it doesn't mean that they are free to no longer engage with one another. No, instead, they have to learn how to hold space with one another. The disciples, the 12, have to do that. But then you read the book of Acts, and you see how now the whole community of God has to figure that out. Because you've got different ethnicities, different groups of people, and they're trying to make sense of how do we 
be the people of God even though we're not really getting along. And this person's doing this and it's like flat out wrong. How do we make that work? Being with Jesus forces them to be with people who are different. That's just the way it is. And that's, that's the same reality that we all experience in relationships and for the church. And there's this pastor and author, his name is Rich Velotas. He offers this kind of helpful language for these stages of relationships that you could apply to church community. He calls it the heavenly stage, the hellish stage, and then the holding the tension stage. The heavenly stage is the stage where you first meet someone or a community and you feel like, oh my gosh, like these people, like I get them, they get me. They're amazing, they're so kind, they're so welcoming, they're so friendly. You talk so glowingly about their community. You talk ab- about them as if they're angels. They're, they're, they're amazing. Maybe you've come among us and you felt like that at one point. Like, man, the people here are really hospitable. They're really nice. They're really friendly. And that community emphasis here is great. Like the potluck. The pastor, I don't know about him, but the people, the people are great. Right? The worship, Jesus, it's Jesus-centered. This stage never lasts very long when it comes to individuals or a community. It doesn't last very long. Over time, we find ourselves disillusioned because we start to come up against conflict. And that's the second stage, this hellish stage. You start to realize that the people that you thought that were so kind and welcoming, you also see that they see the world really differently than you. They communicate kind of differently than you. They do things differently than you. They like different food than you. You came in with this idealistic lens. Now you start to shift, and you start to shift towards extremes. These people aren't angels. They're the opposite. What's wrong with these people? We can't understand how they can hold these certain views, and at our most extreme, we begin to demonize them. And I think sometimes to avoid doing that, we just dismiss them. We just avoid them. We do this in our jobs. We do this in relationships, and we do this in the church. And then this is often where we leave that community, that place. Because the underlying assumption here is that it needs to be heavenly all the time. That there's something wrong with this place, with this community, with this relationship, because there's this tension and conflict. When in reality, that's not true. Conflict is normal. Conflict happens. You have it in your family. You have it in the workplace. You'll have it here. Conflict is a normal thing. I'm not saying that unhealthy, like abusive behaviors is normal. That's not okay. But the type of conflict I'm talking about is the type of things that just come up on a regular basis. It's normal to experience differences. Because we are people who are being uh, renewed and restored, there will be sin that shows up that will create conflict. We can't all be, act, and process, and think the same. We have people here who were born in different uh, uh, time periods, in different countries, who learned a different language first, who came from different backgrounds. Of course we're going to be different. People who come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, of course we're going to have disagreements. It doesn't mean that they're evil. It doesn't mean that they need to be dismissed. We're not angels, but we're also not demons. Because of Jesus, we're somewhere in between. 
We're on the road, Lord willing, towards being transformed fully. And Jesus does promise that he will complete the work he started in us. But that work isn't done yet. So you're still going to come up with conflict. And one of the things that I think happens here is something that Diedrich Bonhoeffer highlights in his book on uh, Life Together. He says, look, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. It is not we who build, Christ builds the church. This is so easy to fall into. And you can easily even read like the book of Acts or another part of the Bible and be like, oh man, this is who the people of God need to be. And then you look at the people in front of you and you're like, this isn't it. Therefore, I need to remove myself. And that's not it. You miss out on the gift that God has for you here in this place. And so if you just stay in that state of disillusionment, you'll either just begin to withdraw or you will fully remove yourself from that community. And I think this is one of the reasons why we hesitate at times to commit to community because it's like, oh man, I don't want to be around them. They're annoying. But we fail to recognize that sometimes we are equally annoying. That we also need grace. That we also need forgiveness. The way we move out of this stage is by learning to give thanks for the community that God has put in your life. The thing that we share with one another, first and foremost, is Christ. Jesus. That, he is the one who unites us. Regardless of all these other things, the thing you share is Jesus. You and our community, all of us, we need Jesus equally, not them more than us. All of us need him and one of the things we can do as we seek to move through this stage is actually asking him to help you remember your own need for grace and love. And asking him to help you see this community, these people, the way he does. That's the third stage. It's learning to hold this tension. It isn't heaven, but it's not hell. We're caught somewhere in between. You're not romanticizing the community, but you're not condemning it. Because you see that that actually hinders you from experiencing the life God wants for you and for them. We'll come up against problems, differences, challenges everywhere we go. That's healthy. But as you learn to regularly see your need for grace, God's grace, and you learn to see this community as God does, you'll find relationships that are no longer shallow, or lack meaning, but rather relationships that are rich, that actually experience and get to express the grace of God to one another. Forgiveness, love, mercy, kindness, generosity. In learning to hold this tension, we actually grow. Grow in our love of Jesus and our love for one another, and we grow in learning to receive love from one another.
That's why community groups can be so beautiful, though they can be also really challenging. So devote yourself to Jesus Christ in his way and do it with others. Don't do it alone. Get in a group or start a group, look for a group. Don't do this alone. It doesn't go well. You weren't meant to. Third thing that we can do is to gather to worship on Sundays. Worship is the adoring response of a human being with all that they are to the revelation of who God is and what he's done. God has made known who he is and what he's doing uniquely through his son, Jesus Christ. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, reveals and appropriates this revelation of Jesus to you and I on a regular, ongoing basis. And for that reason, there's always more to discover, to learn about who God is. There's always more that God is teaching us about himself, things that we need to be reminded of because we're prone to forgetting. There's always more that we are realizing he is doing and has done. And when we learn these things, it's not just like this uh, cognitive information. There's something that actually is meant to form us, to change us. And you see, what we need to understand is that when we gather on Sundays, we're not just like trying to make sense of this. We're actually trying to make sense of who God is and actually encounter the living God, like relate to him. You know, listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 18, verse 20, where he says, look, where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. That is a beautiful promise. He is with us. God with us, Emmanuel. This past year when I was in London, I got to hear from this one pastor named Pete Hughes, and he was just sharing a bit about the story of his church. And he said, we don't have a 10-year plan with all these like seven churches we want to plant or anything like that. We want to do that one day for sure. But our whole thing is about coming into God's presence. And I remember hearing that and deeply resonating with it because it reminds me of how God led Israel in the wilderness. God does not give Israel a map. God gives them himself as a guide. He leads them through it. He gives them himself as provider, healer, and he dwells with his people. And when we gather to worship, we come to encounter the living God. And he is here with us. It's in his presence that we are changed. It's in his presence that we find life and hope, purpose, direction. God doesn't give us a map. He gives us himself. And so when we come and we gather, look, the scriptures, it's like a portal into his presence. And so we open up the scriptures to meet with him, to hear from him. We worship in song because through the melody of our voices, we join the angels and creation in praising the creator and redeemer who inhabits the praise of his people. Even in communion, we meet with God. We commune and we share a meal with him. This week I was reminded that Jesus will go where he's invited Throughout the Gospels, when you look at Jesus and he gets invited to a meal or to a place, he says yes. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is invited by Simon, a Pharisee. He's not very friendly, but he invites Jesus over for a meal. And Jesus says yes. He comes. In John 2, Jesus has been invited to a wedding in Cana and he goes. 
In Matthew 8, a Roman centurion tells Jesus that his servant lies at home sick, and Jesus says, I will come and heal him. This Roman centurion doesn't even ask him to come. Jesus is ready to come. And what's remarkable about many of these types of events is that these people are not disciples of Jesus. Simon is skeptical and opposed to Jesus. And he's going to be a terrible host. He doesn't host Jesus very well. The Roman centurion is a foreigner who represents the occupying forces. The disposition of our God, then, is to come at our invitation, at our time of need. And Daryl Johnson will say, when any human being in any condition invites Jesus to come to event, he, an event, he always says, yes. Holy, unholy, righteous, unrighteous, Jesus always says, yes. And when he shows up, something remarkable happens. He comes when we invite him. And so my question for us as we gather on Sundays, even right now, is when you come, are you expecting to encounter him? To hear from him? To be changed by him? Are you expecting that he's actually going to be here? Where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. We can invite him and he will come. He shows up. He is with us. Gather with us on Sundays. As we worship with him, as we worship him and seek to hear from him, he will change us. Fourth and finally, give your time, treasure, and your talents to him. The dominant thinking of our time emphasizes our own personal ambitions, our kind of like project self. You pursue your best life. And so we tend to steward our energies like this. Number one tends to be towards financial wealth and stability. Then, physical health or pleasure, intellectual pursuits, number three, relational needs being met through our friends and family, and then five, our spiritual interests. But one of the things that will happen when we come to Jesus, when you come into contact with with him, is that he tells you about his kingdom. And all of that begins to change as he invites you into that. In Matthew 6, verse 33, Jesus says, but seek first His kingdom, he's talking about his father's kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. He'll go on to say, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Your father knows what you need. When Jesus invites us to seek God's kingdom first, she's saying amen. She agrees. She's with us. When Jesus invites us to seek God's kingdom first. He's inviting us to orient our lives in a certain direction, to steward all of our energies in that direction as well, to live in sync with his kingdom. Your priorities must be rightly ordered. They must be reordered. So then it goes and becomes first spiritual, that we seek God first, and then relational, that we lay down our lives for others and we invite others to come and be part of the kingdom of God. Our minds, we offer our mind and our resources to be used to advance his kingdom. And then fifth, our lives are now marked by worship and love and servanthood and generosity. This is why just a little bit earlier in Matthew 6 verse 21, Jesus will say, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Speaking about your heart, the things that you prioritize, the things that you love most, that's where your heart is. That's where you're going to direct your energies. And yet the good news of Jesus Christ comes to reorder and renew our loves, to put them in the right order, to put them in the order that God intended for them to be. 
And the reason that so often our lives get all like messed up is because our loves are not rightly ordered. David Nagel says, look, one of the primary purposes of the gospel is the reordering of our deepest loves and affections. It gives us new purposes and desires for our lives in this world, here and now. Reordered love implanted in a transformed heart is the distinctive mark of the Christian. Reordered love implanted in a transformed heart. Jesus comes to reorder our loves. And then he sends us out into the world to learn how to live with these new loves. Properly ordered. And then invite others to encounter him. And this takes time. Because it's so easy when we come into a certain context to just fall back into the older way that we got used to. And so part of following Jesus is actually being with him so that he can help reorder them on a regular basis. That we invite him to work in our heart so that that would happen. And then we go out and we learn to live in that way. And what he'll often do, because he's forming us, is he'll give us opportunities in our lives through different situations to actually show and choose what will be the most important in our life. And here's the beautiful thing about God. Even when we get it wrong, he does not give up on us. What he will more often than not do is actually give us another opportunity to choose the right thing. He doesn't just dismiss us. Some of us in our own lives have experienced that when we got something wrong, someone came down on us and they came down on us really hard. Jesus is not like that. And what Jesus will do is going to give us an opportunity to learn from and grow. He doesn't just say, well, I'm done with you. No, he gives us another opportunity. He seeks to make us aware of where we've gone wrong. But we get another shot. What I want to do is just offer a few ways you can give your time or your treasure or your talents here among us. Give your time by serving. Starting a community group. Being part of one. Giving your time in that way to follow Jesus with others. Serving in our children's ministry on Sundays. By helping even just count the offering that is taken. By serving in Alpha. Yet one of the most powerful ways you can serve and give your time is by praying for the living God to move among us on Sundays and throughout the week. Pray for the renewal of our city. Pray for people to encounter Jesus, for the Spirit to reveal and appropriate Jesus to others. Don't diminish the task of prayer. It matters. You can give your treasure. Our wallets are often an indicator of what we actually care about, what we really care about. Give towards his work here. We have a great building, and yet the reality is is that having a building means we have to be good stewards of it and maintain it. And what we do as a church, we're able to maintain it and maintain the status quo, but to do things that contribute to advancing, we need to give. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. That's not my desire at all. I'm just trying to give you a perspective or an idea of where you can give. Your task is to invite the Lord to actually speak to you about where that might be in your life. Find causes, even within our city, that are doing good work, that care for the poor or for refugees or for others. This is what we've sought to do as a church is just highlight them so that we might be a people who actually give towards that because we believe in that. We want to be generous with what God has given us. 
And third, give your talents. Some of you are remarkable with hospitality. You love to host people, and some of you don't. That's okay. Not all of us have that. So maybe you're not going to be someone that facilitates being hospitable, but maybe you can help in another way. Maybe you're creative. Maybe you're great with communication, and you could, like, you know, uh, you could actually teach people about being great communicators, or you love to be generous. Like, that's just one of your things. There are people who it gives them great, great joy just to give to others. And usually another person in their life is saying, like, what are you doing? You keep giving so much away. Whatever your gift is, you may not know it, but what I would say is this, the best way to discover your gifts is by serving. Because as you serve, you, got, you start to realize, man, I just kind of gravitate towards this. It just keeps coming up in my life. Other people affirm it. I keep getting invited into this. Other people talk to me about how, how impacted they are by it. These are signs that there's something there. Don't ignore that. You have been giving gifts. Every single person in the body of Christ is given a gift for the building up of the church. And so each one of us have something to contribute. And it's going to look different. And look, I, I say all of this recognizing that many of you are serving or involved in a ministry or more than one ministry. I am not trying to make you feel like you are not doing enough. I want to invite you into what God wants to do in you and through us. And so part of that just means like, Lord, search my heart and direct me. Show me the way forward. My life is yours. You are the Lord of my life. You are the one who directs. And you are the one who will provide whatever I need to be able to be faithful to you and what you call me to. That's what I'm trying to invite us into. Because here's the thing. Some of you might hear some of these things and be like, man, this just feels like way too much. But we are the ones for right now. We are the ones for this moment at Cascades and in our city. God has called and entrusted you to follow him as a community, worshiping, serving, and giving so that you would make Jesus known in our city and in our church. Think about this. When God arranged and determined the time and place that you would be alive, he said it would be now, here, in this place. You're here now. You are the people that God has entrusted to be part of this moment in the life of Cascades in our city. He could have chosen you to live in another time, in another generation. And maybe you say, Lord, it would have been really great if it was another time. But that's not for us to choose, as Gandalf would say. All we have to do is know how we're going to respond in this moment. He's chosen to place us in this time. And we have this opportunity to respond to him. So here's what we're going to do. Jesus is here with us, and he loves to lead his people and speak to his people. And we're going to take a moment in silence before him. And we're going to offer all these four things to him and say, Lord, is there anything you want me to turn from? Is there anything you want to heal or forgive? And Lord, is there anything you want me to do this week? So what we'll do is we'll spend some, a moment in silence and I'll just wait and ask those and invite the Lord to speak to us. Father in heaven, we come to you. And we want to still our hearts. 
You are the knower of hearts, Lord Jesus. So right now, we ask, is there anything that you want us to turn from? Would you make us aware of it? Is there anything, Lord, that you want to heal or forgive in our lives? Lord, is there anything you want me to do this week in response to what I've heard? We thank you that you speak to us. That you are willing and ready to heal and forgive. Lord, we commit to the things that you have called us to. Would you give us courage this week? Strength. Help us to remember. And lead us in the way everlasting, we pray. Amen. We're going to move into...